An Introduction to the Human Body, The Human Body and Homeostasis. Humans have many ways to maintain homeostasis, the state of relative stability of the body's internal environment. Disruptions to homeostasis often set in motion corrective cycles called feedback systems that help restore the conditions needed for health and life. Our fascinating journey through the human body begins with an overview of the meanings of anatomy and physiology, followed by a discussion of the organization of the human body and the properties that it shares with all living things. Next, you will discover how the body regulates its own internal environment. This unceasing process called homeostasis is a major theme in every chapter of this book. Finally, we introduce the basic vocabulary that will help you speak about the body in a way that is understood by scientists and healthcare professionals alike. Two branches of science, anatomy and physiology, provide the foundation for understanding the body's parts and functions. Anatomy is the science of a body structures and the relationships among them. It was first studied by dissection, the careful cutting apart of body structures to study their relationships. Today, a variety of imaging techniques also contribute to the advancement of anatomical knowledge. Whereas anatomy deals with structures of the body, physiology is the science of the body functions how the body parts work. Because structure and function are so closely related, you will learn about the human body by studying its anatomy and physiology together. The structure of a part of the body often reflects its functions. For example, the bones of the skull join tightly to form a rigid case that protects the brain. The bones of the fingers are more loosely joined to allow a variety of movements. The walls of the air sacs and the lungs are very thin, permitting rapid movement of inhaled oxygen into the blood. The levels of organization of a language, letters, words, sentences, paragraphs, and so on, can be compared to the levels of organization of the human body. Your exploration of the human body will extend from atoms and molecules to the whole person. From the smallest to the largest, six levels of organization will help you understand anatomy and physiology. The chemical, cellular, tissue, organ, system, and organismal levels of organization. One, chemical level. This very basic level can be compared to the letters of the alphabet and includes atoms, the smallest units of matter that participate in chemical reactions and molecules, two or more atoms joined together. Certain atoms such as carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, phosphorus, calcium, and sulfur are essential for maintaining life. Two familiar molecules found in the body are deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, the genetic material passed from one generation to the next, and glucose, commonly known as blood sugar. Chapters 2 and 25 focus on the chemical level of organization.
2. Cellular level. Molecules combine to form cells, the basic structural and functional units of an organism that are composed of chemicals. Just as words are the smallest elements of a language that makes sense, cells are the smallest living units in the human body. Among the many kinds of cells in your body are muscle cells, nerve cells, and epithelial cells. Figure 1.1 shows a smooth muscle cell, one of the three types of muscle cells in the body. The cellular level of organization is the focus of chapter 3. 3. Tissue level. Tissues are groups of cells and the material surrounding them that work together to perform a particular function, similar to the way words are put together to form sentences. There are just four basic types of tissues in your body, epithelial tissue, connective tissue, muscular tissue, and nervous tissue. Epithelial tissue covers body surfaces, lines hollow organs and cavities, and forms glands. Connective tissue connects, supports, and protects body organs while distributing blood vessels to other tissues. Muscular tissues contract to make body parts move and generates heat. Nervous tissue carries information from one part of the body to another through nerve impulses. Chapter 4 describes the tissue level of organization in greater detail. 4. Organ level. At the organ level, different types of tissues are joined together. Similar to the relationship between sentences and paragraphs, organs are the structures that are composed of two or more different types of tissues. They have specific functions and usually have recognizable shapes. Examples of organs are the stomach, skin, bones, heart, liver, lungs, and brain. Figure 1.1 shows how several tissues make up the stomach. The stomach's outer covering is a layer of epithelial tissue and connective tissue that reduces friction when the stomach moves and rubs against other organs. Underneath are three layers of a type of muscular tissue called smooth muscle tissue, which contracts to churn and mixed food and push it into the next digestive organ, the small intestine. The innermost lining is an epithelial tissue layer that produces fluid and chemicals responsible for digestion in the stomach. Five, system level. A system or chapter in our language analogy consists of related organs with a common function. An example of the system level, also known, the also known as the organ system level, is the digestive system, which breaks down and absorbs food. Its organs include the mouth, salivary glands, pharynx or throat, esophagus, stomach, small intestine, large intestine, liver, gallbladder, and pancreas. Sometimes an organ is part of more than one system. The pancreas, for example, is part of both the digestive system and the hormone-producing endocrine system. 6. Organismal level. An organism, any living individual, can be compared to a book in our analogy. 
All the parts of the human body functioning together constitute the total organism. In the chapters that follow, you will study the anatomy and physiology of the body systems. One point four homeostasis. Homeostasis is the maintenance of relatively stable conditions in the body's internal environment. It occurs because of the ceaseless interplay of the body's many regulatory systems. Homeostasis is a dynamic condition. In response to changing conditions, the body's parameters can shift among points in a narrow range that is compatible with maintaining life. For example, the level of glucose in blood normally stays between 70 and 110 milligrams of glucose per 100 milliliters of blood. Each structure from the cellular level to the system level contributes in some way to keeping the internal environment of the body within normal limits. Homeostasis in body fluids. An important aspect of homeostasis is maintaining the volume and composition of body fluids. Dilute watery solutions containing dissolved chemicals that are found inside cells as well as surrounding them. The fluid within cells is intracellular fluid. The fluid outside body cells is extracellular fluid. The ECF, extracellular fluid, that fills the narrow spaces between cells of the tissue is known as interstitial fluid. As you progress with your studies, you will learn that the extracellular fluid differs depending on where it occurs in the body. ECF within blood vessels is termed blood plasma. Within lymphatic vessels, it is called lymph, and in and around the brain and spinal cord, it is known as cerebrospinal fluid. In joints, it is referred to as synovial fluid, and the ECF of the eyes is called aqueous humor and vitreous body. The proper functioning of body cells depends on precise regulation of the composition of the surrounding fluid. Because extracellular fluid surrounds the cells of the body, it serves as the body's internal environment. By contrast, the external environment of the body is the space that surrounds the entire body. Control of homeostasis. Homeostasis in the body is continually being disturbed. Some disruptions come from the external environment in the form of physical insults such as the intense heat of a hot summer day or a lack of enough oxygen for that two mile run. Other disruptions originate in the internal environment such as blood glucose levels that fall too low when you skip breakfast. Homeostatic imbalances may also occur due to psychological stress in our social environment. The demands of work and school, for example. In most cases, the disruption of homeostasis is mild and temporary, and the response of body cells quickly restore the balance in the internal environment. 
However, in some cases, the disruption of homeostasis may be intense and prolonged, as in poisoning, overexposure to temperature extremes, severe infection, or major surgery. Fortunately, the body has many regulatory regulating systems that can usually bring the internal environment back into balance. Most often, the nervous system and the endocrine system, working together or independently, provide the needed corrective measures. The nervous system regulates homeostasis by sending electrical signals known as nerve impulses, action potentials, to organs that can counteract the changes from the balanced state. The endocrine system includes many glands that secrete messenger molecules called hormones into the blood. Nerve impulses typically cause rapid changes, but hormones usually work more slowly. Both means of regulation, however, work towards the same end, usually through negative feedback systems. Clinical Connection Page 5, Chapter 1.3, Non-Invasive Diagnostic Techniques. Healthcare professionals and students of anatomy and physiology commonly use several non-invasive diagnostic techniques to assess certain aspects of body structure and function. A non-invasive diagnostic technique is one that does not involve insertion of an instrument or device through the skin or a body opening. In inspection, the examiner observes the body for any changes that deviate from normal. For example, a physician may examine the mouth cavity for evidence of disease. Following inspection, one or more additional techniques may be employed. In palpation, which means gently touching, the examiner feels body structures with the hands. An example of palpating the abdomen, an example is palpating the abdomen to detect enlarged or tender internal organs or abnormal masses. In auscultation, which means listening, the examiner listens to body sounds to evaluate the functioning of certain organs, often using a stethoscope to amplify the sounds. An example is auscultation of the lungs during breathing to check for crackling sounds associated with abnormal fluid accumulation. In percussion, Percussion meaning beat. The examiner taps on the body surface with the fingertips and listens to the resulting sound. Hollow cavities or spaces produce a different sound than solid organs. For example, percussion may reveal the abnormal presence of fluid in the lungs or air in the intestines. It may also provide information about the size, consistency, and position of an underlying structure. An understanding of anatomy is important for the effective application of most of these diagnostic techniques.
Chapter 1, page 10, Feedback Systems. Feedback Systems. The body can regulate its internal environment through many feedback systems. A feedback system, or feedback loop, is a cycle of events in which the status of a body condition is monitored, evaluated, changed, remonitored, reevaluated, and so on. Each monitored variable, such as body temperature, blood pressure, or blood glucose level, is termed a controlled condition or controlled variable. Any disruption that changes a controlled condition is called a stimulus. A feedback system includes three basic components, a receptor, a control center, and an effector. 1. A receptor is a body structure that monitors changes in a controlled condition and sends input to a control center. This pathway is called an afferent pathway. Since the information flows towards the control center, afferent, af means towards, and ferent means carried, so it's carried towards. Typically, the input is the form of nerve impulses or chemical signals. For example, certain nerve endings in the skin sense temperature and can detect changes, such as a dramatic drop in temperature. 2. A control center. A control center in the body, for example, the brain, sets the narrow range or set point within a controlled condition that should be maintained, evaluates the input it receives from receptors, and generates output commands when they are needed. Output from the control center typically occurs as nerve impulses or hormones or other chemical signals. This pathway is called an efferent pathway. Efferent meaning away from. Since the information flows away from the control center, it is efferent. In our, skin, in our skin temperature example, the brain acts as the control center, receiving nerve impulses from the skin receptors and generating nerve impulses as output. Three, an effector. An effector is a body structure that receives output from the control center and produces a response or effect that changes the controlled condition. Nearly every organ or tissue in the body can behave as an effector. When your body temperature drops sharply, your brain, the control center, sends nerve impulses through an output to your skeletal muscles that are effectors. The result is shivering, which generates heat and raises your body temperature. A group of receptors and effectors communicating with their control center forms a feedback system that can regulate a controlled condition in the body's internal environment. In a feedback system, the response of the system feeds back information to change the controlled condition in some way, either negating it through negative feedback or enhancing it with positive feedback.
negative feedback systems. A negative feedback system reverses a change in a controlled condition. Consider the regulation of blood pressure. Blood pressure, or BP, is the force exerted by the blood as it presses against the walls of blood vessels. When the heart beats faster or harder, blood pressure increases. If some internal or external stimulus causes blood pressure, which should be a controlled condition, to rise, the following sequence of events occurs, which is shown in figure 1.4. Baroreceptors, the receptors, pressure-sensitive nerve cells located in the walls of certain blood vessels detect higher pressure. The baroreceptors send nerve impulses through input to the brain, the control center, which interprets the impulses and responds by sending nerve impulses through output to the heart and blood vessels, the effectors. Heart race will decrease and blood vessels dilate or widen, which causes the blood pressure to decrease in response. This sequence of events quickly returns the controlled condition, the blood pressure, to normal and homeostasis is restored. Notice that the activity of the effector causes blood pressure to drop, a result that negates the original stimulus, which was an increase in blood pressure. This is why it's called a negative feedback system. Positive feedback systems. Unlike a negative feedback system, a positive feedback system tends to strengthen or reinforce a change in one of the body's controlled conditions. In a positive feedback system, the response affects the controlled condition differently than in a negative feedback system. The control center still provides commands to an effector, but this time the effector produces a physiological response that adds to or reinforces the initial change in the controlled condition. The action of a positive feedback system continues until it is interrupted by some mechanism. Normal childbirth provides a good example of a positive feedback system, which is figure 1.5. The first contractions of labor, the stimulus, push past the fetus into the cervix, the lowest part of the uterus, which opens into the vagina. Stretch-sensitive nerve cells, or receptors, monitor the amount of stretching of the cervix, which is a controlled condition. As stretching increases, they send more nerve impulses, or input, to the brain, the control center, which in turn causes the pituitary gland to release the hormone oxytocin through an output into the blood. Oxytocin causes muscles in the wall of the uterus, the effector, to contract even more forcefully. The contractions push the fetus farther down the uterus, which stretches the cervix even more. The cycle of stretching Hormone release and ever stronger contractions is interrupted only by the birth of the baby. Then stretching of the cervix ceases and oxytocin is no longer needed.
and it is no longer released. <clears throat> Another example of positive feedback is what happens to your body when you lose a great deal of blood. Under normal conditions, the heart pumps blood under sufficient pressure to body cells to provide them with oxygen and nutrients to maintain homeostasis. Upon severe blood loss, blood pressures drop and blood cells, including heart cells, receive less oxygen and function less efficiently. If the blood loss continues, heart cells become weaker. The pumping action of the heart decreases further and blood pressure continues to fall. This is an example of a positive feedback cycle that has serious consequences and may even lead to death if there is no medical intervention. As you will see in chapter 19, blood clotting is also an example of a positive feedback system. These examples suggest that some important differences between positive and negative feedback systems. Because a positive feedback system continually reinforces a change in a controlled condition, some event outside the system must shut it off. If the action of a positive feedback system is not stopped, it can run away and may even produce life-threatening conditions in the body. The action of a negative feedback system, by contrast, slows and then usually stops as the controlled condition returns to its normal state. Usually positive feedback systems reinforce conditions that do not happen very often and negative feedback systems regulate conditions in the body that remain fairly stable over long periods. Chapter 1, page 12, Homeostatic Imbalances. You've seen homeostasis defined as a condition in which the body's internal environment re remains relatively stable. The body's ability to maintain homeostasis gives it tremendous healing power and a remarkable resistance to abuse. The physiological processes responsible for maintaining homeostasis are in large part also responsible for your good health. For most people, lifelong good health is not something that happens effortlessly. The many factors in this balance called health include the following, the environment and your own behavior, your genetic makeup, the air you breathe, the food you eat, and even the thoughts you think. The way you live your life can either support or interfere with your body's ability to maintain homeostasis and recover from the inevitable stresses life throws your way. Many diseases are the result of years of poor health behavior that interferes with the body's natural drive to maintain homeostasis. An obvious example is smoking-related illness. Smoking tobacco exposes sensitive lung tissue to a multitude of chemicals that cause cancer and damage the lung's ability to repair itself. Because diseases such as emphysema and lung cancer are difficult to treat and are very rarely cured, it is much wiser to quit smoking or to never start than to hope a doctor can fix you once you are diagnosed with a lung disease. 
Developing a lifestyle that works with, rather against, your body's homeostatic processes helps you maximize your personal potential for optimal health and well-being. As long as all the body's controlled conditions remain within certain narrow limits, body cells function efficiently. Homeostasis is remained and the body stays healthy. Should one or more components of the body lose their ability to contribute to homeostasis, however, the normal balance among all of the body's processes may be disturbed. If the homeostatic imbalance is moderate, a, dis a disorder or disease may occur. If it is severe, death may result. <clears throat> a disorder is the abnormality of structure of function. Disease is a more specific term for an illness characterized by a recognizable set of signs and symptoms. A local disease affects one part or a limited region of the body. For example, a sinus infection. A systemic disease affects the entire body or several parts of it. For example, influenza. Diseases alter body structures and functions in characteristic ways. A person with a disease may experience symptoms, subjective changes in body functions that are not apparent to an observer. Examples of symptoms are headaches, nausea, and anxiety. Objective changes that a clinician can observe and measure are called signs. Signs of disease can be either anatomical, such as swelling or a rash, or physiological, such as fever, high blood pressure, or paralysis. The science that deals with why, when, and where diseases occur and how they are tr transmitted among individuals in a community is known as epidemiology. Pharmacology is the science that deals with the effects and uses of drugs in the treatment of disease. Clinical Connection 1.5 page 13 Diagnosis of Disease Diagnosis is the science and skill of distinguishing one disorder or disease from another. The patient's symptoms and signs, his, his or her medical history, a physical exam, and laboratory tests provide the basis for making a diagnosis. Taking a medical history consists of collecting information about events that might be related to a patient's illness. These include the chief complaint, or the primary reason for seeking medical attention, the history of present illnesses, past medical problems, family medical problems, social history, and review of symptoms. A physical examination is an orderly evaluation of the body and its functions. This process includes the non-invasive techniques of inspection, palpation, 
oscillation, and percussion that you learned about earlier in the chapter, along with measurement of vital signs, temperature, pulse, respiratory rate, and blood pressure, and sometimes laboratory tests. Thesis statements. What is a thesis statement? A thesis statement is usually one concise sentence that tells readers what your argument is and how you plan to shed light on your topic. It traditionally occurs after a more general statement of introduction in the first paragraph of your essay. It may be useful to think of the thesis statement as a roadmap that familiarizes your reader with the territory that will be explored in the body of your essay. It is important to distinguish the thesis from the general topic or subject of your paper. For example, World War I might be your subject, however, your thesis should answer a specific question about World War I that can be both contested by others and backed up with evidence. The thesis will vary in scope and complexity depending on the length of your paper. Any assignment that asks you to analyze, interpret, argue, or compare, and contrast, contrast is asking you to develop a thesis and support it. How do I develop a thesis statement? Often your assignment will help to narrow your topic, but the development of a strong thesis usually occurs during the process of researching and drafting your essay. While you gather information, you will begin to see relationships between known facts. These connections, whether contrasts or similarities, will help you to develop an opinion about your topic and this will be the foundation for your working thesis or basic argument. There are many techniques for brainstorming that can help you to develop a working thesis. One approach is to ask yourself a number of how and why questions about an aspect of your topic that you find interesting or surprising or that you disagree with. What are the implications of your findings? Once you have some provocative questions Try answering some of them with persuasive or argumentative statements. Remember that such a statement will be a working thesis, meaning that it will need to be revised as soon as you become more familiar with your sources and accumulate evidence both for and against your argument. How do I strengthen my thesis statement? Feedback from others can help you to clarify what you really want to say as opposed to what you think your thesis is saying. You can get feedback from other students, from your instructor, or by making an appointment at the Writing Center. You can also evaluate your own writing by asking the following questions. One, is my position contestable? If everyone agrees with your argument, then it will be more like a summary of well-known facts. If this is the case, your reader will likely judge it as weak. You can strengthen your thesis by anticipating and dismantling 
counter-arguments throughout your essay. Two, is it specific? If you find vague words in your thesis statement like interesting or important, you should ask yourself why it is interesting or important and incorporate those specific reasons into your statement. Three, is my thesis supported by my essay? Often your essay will diverge slightly from your original thesis statement. If this happens, you can change your thesis to better reflect what you actually wrote. Four, is my thesis clear? After reading your introduction, will your reader be able to tell you what your essay is about? If not, you may need to use more specific and clear language. Try rephrasing your thesis statement out loud, beginning with the words, My paper is about. Is this the same as what you wrote? If you can't explain your thesis statement out loud, then you should revise your written version. Example, the evolution of a thesis statement. Suppose you take a course on 20th century Canadian history and your first assignment asks you to analyze the effects of World War I on Canadian nationalism. You sit down and write the following. World War I affected Canadian nationalism in many ways. This weak thesis tells the reader only that the topic of your paper is the effect of World War I on Canadian nationalism. Ask yourself questions about the topic. What was nationalism like before the war? How did it change after the war? Why? What is nationalism? Did all Canadians experience the same form of nationalism? As you begin to research these types of questions, you will begin to develop an argument that will require a specific analysis. Through research, you will find out that the Battle at Vimy Ridge was a defining moment of national pride during the war. You write, the Battle of Vimy Ridge in northern France on April 9, 1917, where Canadian soldiers won more ground than British ever had, was a defining moment that encouraged Canadian national pride. Now you have narrowed your topic down to a specific event within World War I. As you continue to research, however, you find out that only English-speaking Canadian soldiers experienced this national pride. Why? This question may lead you to a stronger thesis because it is generally accepted that the victory at Vimy Ridge enhanced Canadian nationalism. So your above statement is still on the weak side. You write, after the Battle of Vimy Ridge, Canadian nationalism surged. However, even though English-speaking soldiers experienced a defining moment of national solidarity and pride, the minority group of French-speaking soldiers continued to oppose the war. You would need to continue refining and strengthening this statement as you dress, draft your essay, but it is a good working thesis 
from which to embark. You might ask yourself if other minority groups in Canada oppose the war, and you might begin to outline why you think minority groups continue to oppose the war. By continuing to answer your thesis statement, you will come up with a stronger argument and a more resonant paper. Pyramid of Writing Concerns From the most important to the least important all of which are important. The base is the thesis. What exactly is your paper about? Does your paper have a central focus that has been narrowed down and can be expanded? Is your thesis clearly stated? Purpose. What is your paper intended to do? Example, analyze, summarize, argue, etc. Does the purpose match what you're asked to do in the assignment? Audience, for whom are you writing? Is your tone appropriate for the audience you are addressing? Organization, how is the paper organized? Is the organization logical? Does your paper have clear directions and transitions? Development. Do you have examples or evidence to back up your arguments? Do the examples... Do the examples and or evidence match support your main points? Sentence structure. Have you identified and corrected grammatical issues in your paper? Have you read your paper out loud to find awkward phrasing? Punctuation. Does your punctuation follow punctuation rules? Is your use of punctuation consistent? Word choice. Are there words whose meanings you are not sure about? Can you find another word that would more accurately convey what you mean? Spelling. Have you completed a spell check? Did you proofread your paper? Try reading sentence by sentence starting at the end of each paragraph to focus on what is really on the page. Characteristics of a thesis statement. Overarching central message. Should be a standalone statement or captured in the in introduction. Links together all the discussion points in your paper. The body of the paper defends, supports, and or argues in the favor of your thesis statement. Thesis statement is stated again in your conclusion. When do you use a thesis statement? A thesis statement is needed when you are asked to analyze, interpret, argue, compare or contrast. At other times, a clear thesis statement can help provide your reader with a clear idea of what your paper is about. How to develop a thesis. 
Carefully consider what your assignment is asking for. Do your research. Learn about your topic. Think about the contrast and similarities and in information that you have reviewed. Use your opinion to develop a basic argument or, quote, working thesis. Revise your thesis as you accumulate more evidence. Possible references, Owl Purdue, University of Victoria, U of T. This is an article from the Graduate Journal of Counseling Psychology, Volume 1, Issue 2, Spring 2009, Article 14. Title, Identity Development Throughout the Lifetime, An Examination of Ericksonian Theory. Author, Justin T. Sokol. Praxis Week 3. Article, Graduate Journal of Counseling Psychology, Volume 1, Issue 2, Spring 2009, Article 14, Identity Development Throughout the Lifetime, An Examination of Ericksonian Theory, Author Justin T. Sokol. Identity Development Throughout the Lifetime, An Examination of Ericksonian Theory. Abstract. The purpose of the current article is to review identity development from a life span perspective. To accomplish this task, identity development is examined at various developmental stages, including childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. The article utilizes Eric Erickson's psychosocial theory of development to investigate identity development throughout the lifespan. Research findings from empirical studies are included within this discussion. It appears that for many individuals, identity development is a lifelong process that extends well beyond the years of adolescence. End of abstract. The influential writings of Eric Erickson, 1902-1994, have stimulated over 50 years of social science literature. Bracket, Schwartz, 2001. His theories on development have inspired countless research studies, making him an especially relevant figure in the field. Bracket, Kroger, 2007. Erickson wrote at length about identity, focusing mainly on the period of adolescence. However, he did, he did offer insights on identity both during childhood and adulthood. Traces of his theories can be found in almost all forms of identity research. Therefore, it is appropriate to investigate this topic from his perspective. The purpose of this study is to examine identity development from a lifespan perspective. 
The article will begin with a description of Erickson's psychosocial theory of development. Next, attention will be given to identity development during childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Each of these three sections will include a description of Erickson's theories. Empirical studies will also be presented to help illustrate the process of identity development. Finally, the article will close with a brief evaluation of Erickson's identity theory and comments will be offered for future research. Before starting, a few words are in order regarding terminology. In reviewing the literature on identity, there is very little agreement on how identity is defined. Bracket, Bosma, comma, Grafsman, comma, Grotevent, comma, and De Levita, 1994. Erickson alone used a variety of identity-related terms, identification, identity formation, identity development, identity consolidation, identity foreclosure, and identity resolution without providing a great deal of explanation. Brockett Hoare, 2002. As a result, he has been heavily criticized for his ambiguous style of writing. The current article will utilize fewer terms in an effort to convey a clear message. Therefore, quote, identity development, unquote, will describe the overarching process of development, particularly during the adulthood years. Bracket identification will be used to describe development during childhood and, quote, identity formation will be applied to development during adolescence. Erickson's Psychosocial Theory. Eric Erickson's Psychosocial Theory revolutionized developmental thought. He was one of the first to pr propose a lifespan model of human development which included eight successive psychosocial stages. Each stage is associated with an inherent conflict or crisis that the individual must encounter and successfully resolve to proceed with development. It is worth noting that Erickson, 1968, used the term crisis, quote, in a developmental sense to connote not a threat of catastrophe, but a turning point, a crucial period of increased vulnerability and heightened potential, end quote. The assumption is that each psychosocial stage has both a successful and unsuccessful outcome. Example, trust versus mistrust. Initiative versus guilt. Intimacy versus isolation. Resolution of earlier stages is believed to directly affect the resolution of later stages. Erickson summarizes with the following statement. <clears throat> I shall present human growth from the point of view of the conflicts, inner and outer, which the vital personality weathers, re-emerging from each crisis with an increased sense of inner unity, with an increase of judge 
good judgment and an increase in the capacity to do well according to his own standards and the standards of those who are significant to him. Erickson goes on to say, quote, the use of the words to do well, of course, points up the whole question of cultural relativity, end quote, which highlights the emphasis he places on sociocultural factors. Erickson continues to receive a great deal of credit for his recognizing the influence of culture on development. He was the first to illustrate how the social world exists within the psychological makeup of each individual. Erickson believed that the individual cannot be understood apart from his or her social context. Quote, individual and society are intricately woven, dynamically related in continual change, end quote. This is a theme that permeates throughout all of Erickson's eight developmental stages and is especially relevant to the fifth psychosocial stage, identity versus role confusion, which occurs during adolescence. Before examining this developmental task, it is important to recognize what Erickson meant when he used the term, quote, adolescence. Erickson considered adolescence to be a transitional period of development following childhood and leading into adulthood. Unfortunately, he never defined a, rage, a range of chronological ages for adolescence or other periods of life, such as childhood and adulthood. He also wrote in an era when attending college was less common than it is today. This has direct implica implications because of the emphasis he placed on vocational identity. It can be hypothesized that Erickson's version of adolescence refers to an age period roughly associated with middle and high school, ages 12 through 18. Arnett has since proposed a period of development referred to as emerging adulthood, which encompasses the years beyond high school, ages 18 through 25, Identity development is an inherent component of emerging adulthood and there appears to be considerable overlap with the social tasks of adolescence that Erickson describes. Because this stage may be more relevant to what Erickson initially termed adolescence, it will be integrated with the hypothesized aged ranges. Thus, adolescence will refer to the large span of ages 12 through 24 for the current study. It is equally important to operationalize age ranges for the other cultural, for the other developmental periods that will be discussed. Childhood will include ages 6 through 11. Young adulthood will include ages 25 through 39. Middle adulthood will include ages 40 through 65. 
and late adulthood will consist of the years beyond age 65. Although Erickson believed identity formation is the focal point of adolescence, it seems logical to begin from the start with the discussion of childhood development and then proceed through both adolescence and adulthood. Identification in childhood, bracket ages 6 to 11. The process of identity development begins much earlier than adolescence. Erickson believed that seeds of identity are planted at a young age when the child recognizes himself, herself, as a unique being separate from their parents. As maturation occurs, the child takes on characteristics and admired features of parents or significant others. Erickson calls this process identification. Identification allows the child to build a set of ex expectations about what he or she wishes to do. However, the child eventually loses interest in merely adopting the roles and personality attributes of parents or significant others. It is at this point that the process of identity formation is set in motion. According to Erickson, identity formation begins when the usefulness of identification ends. Taking on characteristics of others no longer provides satisfaction. The individual experience, the individual experiences a desire to shape their world in unique ways. Identity formation begins with a synthesis of childhood skills, beliefs, identifications into a coherent, unique whole that provides continuity with the past and direction for the future. Erickson did not discuss identity development during childhood at great length. Alternately, he offered great detail about the process of identity formation during adolescence. Identity formation in adolescence, brackets ages 12 to 24. Erickson believed that the primary psychosocial task of adolescence is the formation of identity. Therefore, he called the developmental conflict identity versus role confusion. There are several contributing factors to the formation of identity. The onset of puberty during adolescence leads to newfound cognitive skills and physical abilities. In addition, increased independence and autonomy leads to greater interaction with neighborhoods, communities, and schools. According to Erickson, this allows the individual to explore vocations, ideologies, and relationships. He gave particular attention to the career domain, stating, quote, in general, it is the inability to settle on an occupational identity which disturbs most young people, end quote. New expectations of adult responsibilities are gradually assumed as the adolescent matures. With adulthood on the horizon, eventually the twin identity questions emerge. One, quote, who am I? And two, quote, what is my place in this world? When the individual is able to assess their personal attributes and match these with outlets for expression available in the environment, Erickson would say identity has been formed.
However, when the individual is unable to manage this developmental task, role confusion occurs. From Erickson's perspective, identity refers to a sense of who one is as a person and as a contributor to society. It is personal coherence or self-sameness throughout evolving time, social change, and altered role requirements. The formation of identity is a major event in the development of personality and associates with positive outcomes. Identity provides a deep sense of ideological commitment and allows the individual to know his or her place in the world. It provides one with a sense of well-being, a sense of being at home in one's body, and a sense of direction in one's life, and a sense of mattering to those who count. Identity is what makes one move with direction. It is what gives one reason to be. Erickson clearly believed that having a solid sense of identity is crucial to further development. However, not all people successfully resolve this developmental task. Role confusion can lead to a very different human experience. It causes the individual to seriously question one's essential personality characteristics, one's view of oneself, and the perceived view of others. Consequently, the individual experiences extreme doubt regarding the meaning and purpose of their existence, leading to a sense of loss and confusion. Due to changing physical, cognitive, and social factors, nearly all adolescents experience some form of role confusion. However, most actively most actively resolve these issues and progress towards later development stages. In summary, Erickson believed that adolescence is a time in which identity normally becomes the focus of concern. Research appears to support this notion by indicating that most extensive advances in identity development occur during the college years. Major gains are expected during college as students make important decisions that pertain to various life domains, including occupation, friendship, romantic relationships, and religious or political beliefs. College environments provide a diversity of experiences that can both trigger considerations of identity issues and suggest alternative resolutions for identity concerns. Erickson would certainly agree. How not, however, not all individuals attend college and have the opportunity to explore the aforementioned identity domains. Even for those who do, it is realistic to think that they is it realistic to think they will make commitments in these areas that are that will remain unchanged throughout their life? It is for these reasons that identity development beyond adolescence will now be discussed. Identity development in adulthood, ages 25 and beyond. Erickson held that identity development does not end with its formation. He viewed it as an ongoing process that captures one's investments throughout the long years of adulthood. Thus, identity development is both a normative period of adolescence and an 
evolving aspect of adulthood. In, tr in contract, contrast, <laughs> in contrast to Erickson's extensive writings on the adolescent identity formation process, he did not offer detailed comments regarding identity's evolution throughout the adult life. As a result, he has been criticized for extending his theory beyond adolescence without providing much detail. To complicate matters further, Erickson conveys contradictory messages speaking on identity development beyond adolescence. According to Erickson, the final identity is, quote, fixed at the end of adolescence. He suggests that identity concerns fade as issues of intimacy, followed by generativity and ego integrity become the main focus. Alternatively, alternatively, Erickson proposed that identity defining issues of adolescence do not remain fixed. They retain flexibility for modification throughout the adult years due to new life experiences. Clearly, these two statements appear contradictory. This is why it's difficult to assess identity development beyond adolescence from his perspective. Thankfully, others have picked up where Erickson left off. There appears to be a considerable scope for identity development beyond adolescence. The identity-defining domains of meaningful vocational, political, religious, interpersonal, and sexual choices remain key foundational issues during young adulthood. Valiant and Milovsky suggests that young adulthood is a time of developing and consolidating goals, particularly in the areas of career and family. On top of implementing a vocational pathway, the demands of partnering and possibly parenting raise new issues for many young adults. Research has indicated that in transitioning from young to middle adulthood, both men and women frequently change their values, goals, what they find important in life, and what they are generally striving towards. Identity-related issues continue to emerge during middle adulthood. During this time period, individuals begin to reclaim opposite sex qualities and experience a shift in perspective on time. Women tend to take on more masculine characteristics, while men take on more feminine characteristics. In addition, the reality that life is, quote, half finished begins to sink in. It is not uncommon for individuals to reevaluate, refine, and readjust vocational and social roles during middle adulthood. Changes in life circumstances can also cause a re-examination of identity issues. Midlife career changes, geographical relocations, resuming one's education, divorce, remarriage, death of loved ones, and adoption are all viable possibilities for middle adulthood. Finally, the commonly used phrase, midlife crisis, is often associated with identity-related issues, although research indicates that this is an infrequently occurring event. 
Examination and evaluation are two words synonymous with continued identity development in late adulthood, ages 65 and beyond. Retirement allows the individual to reflect upon the choices that have been made throughout the course of their life. Reviewing one's life in a positive manner allows the individual to experience satisfaction. Alternatively, a negative life review can leave the individual with feelings of regret. Kroger conducted one of the few studies on identity revision and maintenance processes during late adulthood. Results showed that important identity processes include reintegrating important identity elements from younger years, rebalancing relationships and other social roles, readjusting to loss and diminished physical capacities, and finding life's life meanings. The argument could be made that identity development is still just as much an issue in late adulthood as it is in earlier adulthood. Conclusion. In summary, Erickson's psychosocial theory is composed of eight developmental stages which, which span throughout the course of life. Each state presents the individual with an inherent task or conflict that they must successfully resolve to proceed with development. Erickson placed a great deal of emphasis on socio-cultural factors because he believed these strongly influenced development. Such factors are especially relevant in the process of identity formation. Erickson believed that childhood identifications lay the groundwork for identity formation in adolescence. The process of forming an identity involves creating a coherent sense of self and who one is in relation to the world. Adolescence represents an optimal time for identity development due to a variety of physical, cognitive, and social factors. Although Erickson believed identity was largely, quote, fixed by the end of adolescence, he did suggest that identity continues to evolve throughout adulthood. Unfortunately, he did not give great detail on what this process looks like. Research shows that identity development continues to be an ongoing process throughout adulthood. Just as in adolescence, vocations, ideologies, and relationships continue to remain important identity issues. Several studies have been presented to, presented to support this notion. Much like forming an identity, reviewing the literature on this nebulous topic is no small task. As discussed earlier, researchers used a variety of terms and phrases when describing the process of identity development. It is also difficult to find continuity with regards to developmental periods and associated ages. A strong effort has been made to use terminology that connects Erickson's work with more recent empirical studies in a manner that is understandable and coherent. It would be wise for future researchers to use agreed upon terms and definitions so as not to confuse readers and fellow colleagues. No matter what you call it, identity development is a major psychosocial task and one that appears during many phases of life. Although Erickson may not have been clear regarding identity development beyond adolescence, we will always be indebted to him for the great deal of discussion and conversation he has stimulated on this intriguing topic.
end of essay, lots of references. Praxis week three, article, Graduate Journal of Counseling Psychology, volume one, issue two, spring 2009, article 14. Identity development throughout the lifetime, an examination of Ericksonian theory, author Justin T. Sokol. Identity Development Throughout the Lifetime, an Examination of Ericksonian Theory. Abstract. The purpose of the current article is to review identity development from a life span perspective. To accomplish this task, identity development is examined at various developmental stages, including childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. The article utilizes Eric Erickson's psychosocial theory of development to investigate identity development throughout the lifespan. Research findings from empirical studies are included within this discussion. It appears that for many individuals, identity development is a lifelong process that extends well beyond the years of adolescence. End of abstract. The influential writings of Eric Erickson, 1902-1994, have stimulated over 50 years of social science literature. Bracket, Schwartz, 2001. His theories on development have inspired countless research studies, making him an especially relevant figure in the field. Bracket, Kroger, 2007. Erickson wrote at length about identity, focusing mainly on the period of adolescence. However, he did, he did offer insights on identity both during childhood and adulthood. Traces of his theories can be found in almost all forms of identity research. Therefore, it is appropriate to investigate this topic from his perspective. The purpose of this study is to examine identity development from a lifespan perspective. The article will begin with a description of Erickson's psychosocial theory of development. Next, attention will be given to identity development during childhood, adolescence, and adulthood. Each of these three sections will include a description of Erickson's theories. Empirical studies will also be presented to help illustrate the process of identity development. Finally, the article will close with a brief evaluation of Erickson's identity theory and comments will be offered for future research. Before starting, a few words are in order regarding terminology. In reviewing the literature on identity, there is very little agreement on how identity is defined. Bracket, Bosma, comma, Grafsman, comma, Grotevent, comma, and De Levita, 1994. Erickson alone used a variety of identity-related terms, 
identification, identity formation, identity development, identity consolidation, identity foreclosure, and identity resolution without providing a great deal of explanation. Bracket Hoare, 2002. As a result, he has been heavily criticized for his ambiguous style of writing. The current article will utilize fewer terms in an effort to convey a clear message. Therefore, quote, identity development, unquote, will describe the overarching process of development, particularly during the adulthood years. Bracket identification will be used to describe development during childhood and, quote, identity formation will be applied to development during adolescence. Erickson's Psychosocial Theory. Eric Erickson's psychosocial theory revolutionized developmental thought. He was one of the first to propose a lifespan model of human development which included eight successive psychosocial stages. Each stage is associated with an inherent conflict or crisis that the individual must encounter and successfully resolve to proceed with development. It is worth noting that Erickson 1968, used the term crisis, quote, in a developmental sense to connote not a threat of catastrophe, but a turning point, a crucial period of increased vulnerability and heightened potential, end quote. The assumption is that each psychosocial stage has both a successful and unsuccessful outcome. Example, trust versus mistrust. Initiative versus guilt. Intimacy versus isolation. Resolution of earlier stages is believed to directly affect the resolution of later stages. Erickson summarizes with the following statement. <clears throat> I shall present human growth from the point of view of the conflicts, inner and outer, which the vital personality weathers, re-emerging from each crisis with an increased sense of inner unity, with an increase of judge, good judgment, and an increase in the capacity to do well, according to his own standards and the standards of those who are significant to him. Erickson goes on to say, quote, the use of the words to do well, of course, points up the whole question of cultural relativity, end quote, which highlights the emphasis he places on sociocultural factors. Erickson continues to receive a great deal of credit for his recognizing the influence of culture on development. He was the first to illustrate how the social world exists within the psychological makeup of each individual. Erickson believed that the individual cannot be understood apart from his or her social context. Quote, individual and society are intricately woven, dynamically related in continual change, end quote. 
This is a theme that permeates throughout all of Erickson's eight developmental stages and is especially relevant to the fifth psychosocial stage, identity versus role confusion, which occurs during adolescence. Before examining this developmental task, it is important to recognize what Erickson meant when he used the term, quote, adolescence. Erickson considered adolescence to be a transitional period of development following childhood and leading into adulthood. Unfortunately, he never defined a, rage, a range of chronological ages for adolescence or other periods of life, such as childhood and adulthood. He also wrote in an era when attending college was less common than it is today. This has direct implica implications because of the emphasis he placed on vocational identity. It can be hypothesized that Erickson's version of adolescence refers to an age period roughly associated with middle and high school, ages 12 through 18. Arnett has since proposed a period of development referred to as emerging adulthood, which encompasses the years beyond high school, ages 18 through 25. Identity development is an inherent component of emerging adulthood, and there appears to be considerable overlap with the social tasks of adolescence that Erickson describes. Because this stage may be more relevant to what Erickson initially termed adolescence, it will be integrated with the hypothesized age ranges. Thus, adolescence will refer to the large span of ages 12 through 24 for the current study. It is equally important to operationalize age ranges for the other cultural, for the other developmental periods that will be discussed. Childhood will include ages 6 through 11. Young adulthood will include ages 25 through 39. Middle adulthood will include ages 40 through 65 and late adulthood will consist of the years beyond age 65. Although Erickson believed identity formation is the focal point of adolescence, it seems logical to begin from the start with the discussion of childhood development and then proceed through both adolescence and adulthood. Identification in childhood, bracket ages 6 to 11. The process of identity development begins much earlier than adolescence. Erickson believed that seeds of identity are planted at a young age when the child recognizes himself, herself, as a unique being separate from their parents. As maturation occurs, the child takes on characteristics and admired features of parents or significant others. Erickson calls this process identification. Identification allows the child to build a set of ex expectations about what he or she wishes to do. 
However, the child eventually loses interest in merely adopting the roles and personality attributes of parents or significant others. It is at this point that the process of identity formation is set in motion. According to Erickson, identity formation begins when the usefulness of identification ends. Taking on characteristics of others no longer provides satisfaction. The individual experience, the individual experiences a desire to shape their world in unique ways. Identity formation begins with a synthesis of childhood skills, beliefs, identifications into a coherent, unique whole that provides continuity with the past and direction for the future. Erickson did not discuss identity development during childhood at great length. Alternately, he offered great detail about the process of identity formation during adolescence. Identity formation in adolescence, brackets ages 12 to 24. Erickson believed that the primary psychosocial task of adolescence is the formation of identity. Therefore, he called the developmental conflict identity versus role confusion. There are several contributing factors to the formation of identity. The onset of puberty during adolescence leads to newfound cognitive skills and physical abilities. In addition, increased independence and autonomy leads to greater interaction with neighborhoods, communities, and schools. According to Erickson, this allows the individual to explore vocations, ideologies, and relationships. He gave particular attention to the career domain, stating, quote, in general, it is the inability to settle on an occupational identity which disturbs most young people, end quote. New expectations of adult responsibilities are gradually assumed as the adolescent matures. With adulthood on the horizon, eventually the twin identity questions emerge. One, quote, who am I? And two, quote, what is my place in this world? When the individual is able to assess their personal attributes and match these with outlets for expression available in the environment, Erickson would say identity has been formed. However, when the individual is unable to manage this developmental task, Role confusion occurs. From Erickson's perspective, identity refers to a sense of who one is as a person and as a contributor to society. It is personal coherence or self-sameness throughout evolving time, social change, and altered role requirements. The formation of identity is a major event in the development of personality and associates with positive outcomes. Identity provides a deep sense of ideological commitment and allows the individual to know his or her place in the world. It provides one with a sense of well-being, a sense of being at home in one's body, and a sense of direction in one's life, and a sense of mattering to those who count. Identity is what makes one move with direction. It is what gives one reason to be. 
Erickson clearly believed that having a solid sense of identity is crucial to further development. However, not all people successfully resolve this developmental task. Role confusion can lead to a very different human experience. It causes the individual to seriously question one's essential personality characteristics, one's view of oneself, and the perceived view of others. Consequently, the individual experiences extreme doubt regarding the meaning and purpose of their existence, leading to a sense of loss and confusion. Due to changing physical, cognitive, and social factors, nearly all adolescents experience some form of role confusion. However, most actively most actively resolve these issues and progress towards later development stages. In summary, Erickson believed that adolescence is a time in which identity normally becomes the focus of concern. Research appears to support this notion by indicating that most extensive advances in identity development occur during the college years. Major gains are expected during college as students make important decisions that pertain to various life domains, including occupation, friendship, romantic relationships, and religious or political beliefs. College environments provide a diversity of experiences that can both trigger considerations of identity issues and suggest alternative resolutions for identity concerns. Erickson would certainly agree. How not, however, not all individuals attend college and have the opportunity to explore the aforementioned identity domains. Even for those who do, it is realistic to think that they is it realistic to think they will make commitments in these areas that are that will remain unchanged throughout their life? It is for these reasons that identity development beyond adolescence will now be discussed. Identity development in adulthood, ages 25 and beyond. Erickson held that identity development does not end with its formation. He viewed it as an ongoing process that captures one's investments throughout the long years of adulthood. Thus, identity development is both a normative period of adolescence and an evolving aspect of adulthood. In, in, contract, contrast, <laughs> in contrast to Erickson's extensive writings on the adolescent identity formation process, he did not offer detailed comments regarding identity's evolution throughout the adult life. As a result, he has been criticized for extending his theory beyond adolescence without providing much detail. To complicate matters further, Erickson conveys contradictory messages speaking on identity development beyond adolescence. According to Erickson, the final identity is, quote, fixed at the end of adolescence. He suggests that identity concerns fade as issues of intimacy followed by generativity and ego integrity become the main focus. Alternately, 
Alternatively, Erickson proposed that identity-defining issues of adolescence do not remain fixed. They retain flexibility for modification throughout the adult years due to new life experiences. Clearly, these two statements appear contradictory. This is why it's difficult to assess identity development beyond adolescence from his perspective. Thankfully, others have picked up where Erickson left off. There appears to be a considerable scope for identity development beyond adolescence. The identity-defining domains of meaningful vocational, political, religious, interpersonal, and sexual choices remain key foundational issues during young adulthood. Valiant and Milovsky suggests that young adulthood is a time of developing and consolidating goals, particularly in the areas of career and family. On top of implementing a vocational pathway, the demands of partnering and possibly parenting raise new issues for many young adults. Research has indicated that in transitioning from Young to middle adulthood, both men and women frequently change their values, goals, what they find important in life, and what they are generally striving towards. Identity-related issues continue to emerge during middle adulthood. During this time period, individuals begin to reclaim opposite sex qualities and experience a shift in perspective on time. Women tend to take on more masculine characteristics, while men take on more feminine characteristics. In addition, the reality that life is, quote, half-finished begins to sink in. It is not uncommon for individuals to reevaluate, refine, and readjust vocational and social roles during middle adulthood. Changes in life circumstances can also cause a re-examination of identity issues. Midlife career changes, geographical relocations, resuming one's education, divorce, remarriage, death of loved ones, and adoption are all viable possibilities for middle adulthood. Finally, the commonly used phrase, midlife crisis, is often associated with identity-related issues, although research indicates that this is an infrequently occurring event. Examination and evaluation are two words synonymous with continued identity development in late adulthood, ages 65 and beyond. Retirement allows the individual to reflect upon the choices that have been made throughout the course of their life. Reviewing one's life in a positive manner allows the individual to experience satisfaction. Alternatively, a negative life review can leave the individual with feelings of regret. Kroger conducted one of the few studies on identity revision and maintenance processes during late adulthood. Results showed that important identity processes include reintegrating important identity elements from younger years, rebalancing relationships and other social roles, readjusting to loss and diminished physical capacities, and finding life's life meanings. The argument could be made that identity development is still just as much an issue in late adulthood as it is in earlier adulthood. Conclusion. 
In summary, Erickson's psychosocial theory is composed of eight developmental stages which, which span throughout the course of life. Each state presents the individual with an inherent task or conflict that they must successfully resolve to proceed with development. Erickson placed a great deal of emphasis on sociocultural factors because he believed these strongly influenced development. Such factors are especially relevant in the process of identity formation. Erickson believed that childhood identifications lay the groundwork for identity formation in adolescence. The process of forming an identity involves creating a coherent sense of self and who one is in relation to the world. Adolescence represents an optimal time for identity development due to a variety of physical, cognitive, and social factors. Although Erickson believed identity was largely, quote, fixed by the end of adolescence, he did suggest that identity continues to evolve throughout adulthood. Unfortunately, he did not give great detail on what this process looks like. Research shows that identity development continues to be an ongoing process throughout adulthood. Just as in adolescence, vocations, ideologies, and relationships continue to remain important identity issues. Several studies have been presented to, presented to support this notion. Much like forming an identity, reviewing the literature on this nebulous topic is no small task. As discussed earlier, researchers use a variety of terms and phrases when describing the process of identity development. It is also difficult to find continuity with regards to developmental periods and associated ages. A strong effort has been made to use terminology that connects Erickson's work with more recent empirical studies in a manner that is understandable and coherent. It would be wise for future researchers to use agreed upon terms and definitions so as not to confuse readers and fellow colleagues. No matter what you call it, identity development is a major psychosocial task and one that appears during many phases of life. Although Erickson may not have been clear regarding identity development beyond adolescence, we will always be indebted to him for the great deal of discussion and conversation he has stimulated on this intriguing topic. End of essay. Lots of references. Praxis week three. Theory Learning Activity 2020 Human Development Overview A theory is a system of ideas that informs practice. The function of theory is to explain, predict, and prescribe phenomena. Nursing theories aim to organize knowledge about nursing and, quote, provide nurses with a perspective from which to view client situations, a way to organize data, and a method of analyzing and interpreting information. End quote. Thorne, 2015, page 54. As nurses provide care for clients throughout their lives, it is important for nurses to have knowledge of human development. Human development refers to the bi 
biological, cognitive, and socio-emotional changes that occur in individuals throughout their lifespan. With an understanding of typical human development, nurses are able to predict changes and detect variations from expected patterns, which enable them to support developmental well-being. Burke, 2008, Bucato, 2012, as cited in Potter, Perry, Stockard, and Hall, 2019, page 343. When developmental theories are considered in the assessment and the interpretation of client responses, nurses are better, to under, better able to understand individual needs and plan effective care. The ends in view for this week are to describe and compare major theoretical models of nursing practice, describe your understanding of the client and the nurse, Identify nursing process as a fundamental problem-solving process. Describe and compare developmental theories as they contribute to our understanding of the developmental process from birth to death. Discuss the nursing implications associated with the application of developmental principles in nursing practice with individuals and families. Discuss Maslow's motivational theory of human needs. Required readings. Chapter 21, Developmental Theories in P.A. Potter and Perry, Canadian Fundamentals of Nursing. Visit the following website, read the article, and watch the YouTube video of Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Complete the following. In class, in the discussion forum, review the different theoretical approaches to study growth and development, highlighting the stage of older adulthood. B, examine Maslow's hierarchy of needs and apply it to various stages of growth and development, particularly noting how it is relevant to older adulthood. Progress to praxis. Discuss how the growth and development Process influences an individual's or family's perception of health, their health needs, and health behaviors. How will your knowledge of growth and development patterns influence your nursing practice and personal health? Think of a few examples that could illustrate an application of your knowledge. And Praxis Week 2, Theory Learning Activity Number 2. Concept Changes in Aging Overview Understanding the normal aging process and changes relating to it is necessary for identifying those that are potentially pathological. There are many internal and external factors that influence the aging experience and are realized both subjectively and objectively by the older person. Knowledge of the theories of aging and the principles of healthcare as applied to the older adult are necessary for health professionals to have because it allows them to assist clients in this developmental stage and provides them with competent care in all domains of their health. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. This myth, along with many others related to aging and the older adult, 
can influence the relationship and care plans that nurses develop with their clients. When widespread assumptions about a group of people are made based on a limited or false knowledge, it fails to recognize the uniqueness and strengths of each individual in the group. These assumptions can result directly in negative outcomes for our client. The ends in view. Develop a basic understanding of potentially pathological changes of aging. Develop a basic understanding of the various theories of aging. Develop an understanding of a variety of aspects of healthy aging, including physical, social, psychological, spiritual, and cognitive. To discover and dispel myths and stereotypes related to aging and the older adult. To discuss global trends in gerontological health care. And to incorporate prevention and health promotion in our care of the older adult. Required reading, chapter 24 in Canadian Fundamentals of Nursing. Complete the following quiz online, Myths of Aging. Answer the following questions. Name three myths or stereotypes currently affecting older adults. Name five normal age-related challenges affecting older adults. Name describe five strategies to address the healthcare concerns of older adults. In the seminar today, we will A, in the discussion forum, review what you have learned about health and wellness, develop a definition of aging, Will personal experiences, biases, and learned knowledge have influenced your definition? Please share your definition with the class in the specified forum. B. In the discussion forum, review the answers to the questions from today's learning activity. C. Review these theories associated with normal growth changes of the older adult, as well as objective and subjective experiences of healthy aging. Furthermore, examine how this lecture examined the social, psychological, and spiritual and cognitive aspects of aging. D, read the following article and discuss the findings with the discussion forum. Reflect on how this information will influence your care of the older adult. Consider posting your reflection for peers to read. This article is from Research and Theory for Nursing Practice labeled Successful Aging from the Viewpoint of Older Adults. And to progress to praxis, reflect on any stigmas or stereotypes that you may have or have that you may have or had about the older adult in relation to the norms of their health at an advanced age, their health needs and health behaviors. How have your perceptions changed with the knowledge gained over the last two weeks of this course? How will this influence your nursing practice? Think of a few examples that could illustrate an application of your knowledge.